0: Hey everyone, it's Elliot here. Before you start the episode, I just wanted to apologise for my audio quality this episode. Uh, Something went wrong. Um, I guess it's probably easiest if you pretend I've used glamour to disguise myself as someone with a 10 foot cardboard tube for a mouth. Uh, Anyway, I'll let you get to it.
1: Welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Doof Network where we dive deep into Wildbow's most spooky work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Debold.
0: And that was Ruben Morehouse.
1: And we are back to talk about Breach 3.3. So yeah. Breach 3.2 left us on a great cliffhanger and a we, big one, we yep. even spent some time theory crafting exactly what it could mean. And Breach 3.3 Does not tell us right off the bat. (laughs) Um, I was delighted imagining your reaction to finding out that we jumped forward
0: in time. Yeah, I started this chapter and it was like, now, now there's a time skip. (laughs) You know, we've just had almost six chapters in a row that have gone like, you know, word for word into the next chapter. Yeah. And, and now there's a time skip. It was just hilarious. Like, I was just yeah. laughing at my own pain. <laughs> I I
1: think that sums up a Wild Burst story pretty well sometimes. But I, <laughs> I do think that the reason that this happens is because it's a serial format. I think if imagining the, you know, two to three days between the end of the last chapter and the start of this chapter, if you jump right into the explanation, I think you're not, you're not yet back in the mindset, you know? Um, and so having a, a first section... To, uh, to kind of get us back in the zone before we actually get the reveal means that people are kind of back into the, oh, what's going on with this cliffhanger mindset? Oh, I'm in the story now, I'm invested, all right, hit me with it.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. Like, I I haven't had to do it because of how closely we're studying this story, but as I sort of read Ward uh, e- each week, I usually find myself having to go back and read the last two to three paragraphs of the previous chapter and then start like you know the fresh chapter of ward because i've sort of forgotten exactly where things left off sometimes um yeah and and so yeah like like i said i you know i haven't had to do that with this because we're i'm reading them two or three times in a row yeah but i think i think you're right i think for for a normal reader uh it's probably helpful
1: yeah um so Let's talk about what's actually going on now. (laughs) So we've jumped forward in time to Blake heading to Laird's house. Um, He's disguised as just some nondescript person. He heads over to Laird's and he sees that there is some kind of event happening. Uh, A bunch of Bahames and Duchamps seemingly from out of town, like not ones that he even recognises, are here for some kind of gathering.
0: Yeah, and I think it was at this point that I messaged you and was like, is Blake wedding crashing? Um, And it turns (laughs) out the answer to that question is yes. Yeah, well, kind of. (laughs) The structure of this whole chapter sort of reminds me of like your classic movie heist, uh, where, you know, you're sort of getting the shots of of them doing the heist and then we cut back to the (laughs) the the bit where they're planning it.
1: Yeah, where they've got the blueprint rolled out on the table and they're pointing to it.
0: Yeah, so it's a bit like that. Except this is Blake, so the planning part of it is essentially him saying, "You know what? I think I might go do it." Yeah, <laughs> but uh, like just the way it sort of it, it it starts in in this sort of tense, suspenseful thing where you're like, you know, once you get over the fact that we're not getting the second half of that conversation quite yet, you're like, "What the fuck is he doing?" Like he's he's you know he's walked into the lion's den. Um, yeah. This is probably the most dangerous place, and so you just immediately sort of tense and then we cut back a bit and and you know find out a bit how he got here and then we go back yep. into the action
1: <laughs>
0: yeah I think the
1: tension is one of the core themes of this chapter um Blake is manipulating his glamour throughout this entire chapter and he he kind of makes it expressly clear that at any moment if any of the practitioners there a large proportion of which are specializing in people and the connections between people. If any of them like notice him or notice that something's off, his glamour will fail and he will be surrounded by a large number of enemy practitioners and just completely fucked.
0: Yeah. he'll. If, if this doesn't go very well, then he's completely fucked. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, as he sort of mentions a bit later in the chapter, he's also in a situation where all of these, you know, dozens of practitioners that he's trying to avoid are better than him. Yep, definitely. It's definitely the whole time you just—it's at any second the shit could hit the fan, and and there's and that tension carries through pretty much the whole chapter.
1: Something I also really like about this is part of the uh, power of the glamour comes from his belief in it. So mm. it's not just if anyone notices; it's if he starts to doubt himself too much in the face of this incredibly you know doubt inducing situation he's also fucked
0: (laughs) yeah no it's a great it's a great sort of little mechanic where it's like you you know it works really well if you think it's going to work really well so you need to just have confidence in it and then it'll work but that's like so much easier said than done that's like you know it's like if you've got anxiety and people like oh well just don't worry about it and it's like well if i could like you know then I wouldn't. Um and, and it feels mm. it feels like sense of the same thing, you just go walk around and be like, Well of course it's gonna work. Um yeah. and kind of delude yourself into thinking it's gonna work. It's it's great. Yeah. Uh so we leave
1: Blake in the lion's den for a moment and we jump back and get the resolution to the cliffhanger at the end of the last chapter.
0: Yeah, and I mean, thank God. <laughs> like if this hadn't been in the whole <laughs> chapter, I would have I would have been very mad.
1: Mm. Uh, Rose basically explains that she noticed that the lawyers didn't show up when Blake called for them. When Blake was off making toast or whatever he was doing at that point, um, Rose uh, called out to the lawyers and then they showed up. And so she suspects she's the voice and the power and the history of the Thorburns while Blake is the body and the ability to interact with the physical world.
0: Yeah. I can't believe I blabbed on for like eight minutes yesterday and totally managed to forget the whole Rose with the lawyers bit. Well, I actually don't think she called, we didn't
1: see her, as far as I know, call out the names, unless I'm mistaken.
0: No, but there was this whole sort of bit going on for the first half of the conversation where she wasn't really participating, she just looked shocked, and then she was sort of contemplative, yeah. I guess. And, right, true. Um, And so, I mean, I think that that was our clue um, towards yep. this, essentially, and I can't believe that uh, I yeah. totally forgot about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as well as the the fact that
1: both Leonard and June overtly only really responded when she interacted with them.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, that's one of those things that seems really obvious in hindsight. But again, I didn't quite put that together. Um, so I'm still a little unconvinced that this is everything uh, to do with it. No, this might be everything that Rose knows. I, I'm I'm probably willing to accept that. I, I doubt that this is everything to the whole Blake and Rose dynamic. Mm. And one other thing, I, I just want to jump back a bit. Um, we, we quickly skipped over. Um, just before we have the section break that cuts to, you know, back in time where we get this conversation, um, as Blake's entering what I think is Laird's house or some Behame mm-hmm. house.
1: Yeah, th- Laird's
0: house. Yeah, he has this sort of quote in his monologue to finish off the section, um, which is, I didn't feel as panicked as I should. I told myself it was because I was going with the flow. Adapting the circumstance. I didn't want to believe it was some deeper flaw. Another deeper element at play. Mm. I mean, I, like, I think the obvious read is this is just Blake hating himself a little bit for how much he just, just tends to run into these situations without a plan. Mm. But it almost feels like, especially because the section ends on it, that maybe there's a bit more to it. And I'm wondering if Blake is worried that he's going a little bit suicidal in that he's just... Mm. You know, like, you know, this plan is, like, it could be described as suicidal, and I don't think that would be uh, an unfair categorization of this plan. And I wonder if that's something Blake is worried that subconsciously he's just throwing himself in because at least that way he dies fighting, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think it's been very rammed home that Blake is going to die, right? Like...
0: Yeah. Everyone knows. Well, no one's, no one's pretending that Blake's got long to live. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, except for
1: Blake. Um, Blake. Uh, and I think with Blake's character, it makes sense that he kind of could lean into, okay, I'm going to die, but I'm going to take some of them down with me. I think that's what he's afraid of doing. I think that's what he's afraid of turning into.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, uh, I'm going to be, I'll probably be keeping that line in, in mind as we as we go forward in the story
1: yeah um jumping back to to rose's explanation uh we basically kind of Blake takes a bit of an existential crisis here um he's yeah. he's worried that he's not who he he he's worried that he he doesn't kind of feel like himself uh he he, he says am I even me right now which I love because presumably this is what rose feels all the time <laughs>
0: Yeah, I didn't even think. Oh, I guess I went full Blake. I didn't even think of of that. But that's a great connection. Like this is a big moment for Blake, where he's like, "Wow, am I even mean?" It and as soon as you pointed that out, it's just like, "Well, yeah, that's been Rose's life, like since the story started." Since her birth?
1: Question mark. Yeah, <laughs> <Her> ghost birth. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, they, they talk a bit about gender as well, um, and there's some fun discussion on gender being you know we kind of understand gender as a social construct a bit more today but uh rose points out well i don't think others are the most uh progressively thinking bunch
0: yeah and i mean it's interesting because you know if you if you really wanted to get technical you could try and figure out like what is it about gender um specifically that you know others are sort of attaching the lines to like is it chromosomal um and and then you know there's so many sort of options i feel like because it's packed it's probably more something to do with energy which means mm. maybe it even is mutable like you you know there's a lot to consider here and I, I don't really know if that's really something the book will explore i guess we'll see but um yeah. it, it raises questions about what exactly gender means in the world of pact
1: yeah i think uh there are already we're seeing themes of identity as part of pact and obviously gender Definitely. is a part of that um yeah, so I guess it it will be interesting to see what th- other threads of identity we explore throughout the story. Um, True. Maggie's Maggie's dad is still around during this part of the conversation, <laughs> and he, uh, you know, he he plays right into the continuing thread of Wild Bows characters. There being some great dads in there. Um, you know, we've got Taylor's dad, we have uh, Victoria's dad, and now we have Maggie's dad. They're all great dads, like dad blake's dad well we'll see (laughs) um probably not uh so uh maggie's dad basically wants more info from from maggie about what the heck's going on um and blake basically gives him the bare bones version oh someone's trying to get me unprovoked and i need maggie's help maggie's like "Mm, yeah that's probably enough to tell him
0: this is as close to a lie as you could get without lying as far as i'm yeah. concerned like yeah maggie's dad is just doing the very reasonable thing in this situation if you ask me yeah um oh yeah and- of course i mean maggie's dad knows that weird shit exists and <laughs>
1: this is clearly part of it and so he has every right to be a little uh protective i'm not going to even say overprotective because i don't no. think it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's not being it's not being overprotective when we know what we do about the world of like practitioners. Um I don't think there's such a thing as overprotective uh in I, that uh, world. Th- <laughs> there's a great quote that I want to pull out here where Maggie's dad says,
1: I don't want her getting embroiled in fights. She told me that she'd do this for defensive purposes, to protect herself and protect me. And Maggie says, I did agree to something like that which obviously means <laughs> Maggie pulled some tricky wording and her dad didn't notice at the time. Um, so that's... Well, fun. it's like,
0: even even if she did agree to that, like, word for word, um, you could yeah. argue that the best defense is a good offense, so... Oh, yeah,
1: for sure. And that basically, Blake says that exact thing. He says, well, uh, uh, this could go bad and you guys could get hurt. Like, yeah, oh, which is right, Blake... <laughs>
0: Which is bullshit.
1: Like, let's <laughs> be honest. Like, yeah, it's, it's, I, I mean, obviously, it could have spill-on effects, but those effects only exist because Maggie has made herself an ally to Blake, right?
0: Yeah, uh, I- exactly. And I mean, because you know, this sort of ends with Maggie giving him the goblins, and I thought it was yeah. interesting that she agreed to this so readily because there's no situation where Blake actually uses these goblins that isn't bad. That doesn't come back to her.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, potentially it could be attributed to Johannes, but. I mean, She's Maggie already associated has been discovered with, with as an associate. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, anyway, Maggie obviously is trying to, you know, play nice with Blake. who's. You get the sense that she actually kind of likes at this point and feels bad for what went down uh, at the end of, of the last arc.
0: No, well, I, I think I think that must have occurred to her that giving him the goblins would come back to her. So I do really think yeah. I, I kind of see this as her firmly planting herself in his side of things. And, yeah. You know, I don't think either of them very much made it clear to her dad what what that entails for her. But uh, I think she, yeah, I think I think by doing this, she's essentially planted her flag on on Blake's side of the of the course. Yeah.
1: So with uh, a goblin added to his, you know slot of six Pokemon, Blake. Uh, we jump back to Blake at the party, um, and the first thing that happens when we jump back is someone calls out, hey you, to Blake, and he, he kind of freaks out and turns <laughs> around and finds out that just some random Duchamp dudes are trying to offer him drinks, um, and we get this very weird scene that is hilarious and tense and interesting and informative,
0: and depressing. all at the same time,
1: yeah, it's, yeah.
0: Yeah, there's a lot going on in, in this conversation, um, <laughs> yeah. Like, we find out about the Duchamps and about what it's yep. like to be a man in the in the family of the Duchamps. And, and you know, I think th- when the guy summarizes it as... Th- th- there's one guy who says, it's a trap. And I think that pretty much summarizes it. Um, it yeah. sounds like they've got pretty shitty existences. Um, like, it doesn't he- really seem like there's any Duchamp husband, at least in this group, who has a good relationship with uh, the wife. Well, yeah, we kind of find out
1: through this that the Duchamps are mostly or entirely women that marry men into the family for the purposes of you know like political marriages or even just to keep the family line going um and that's not a great life they they kind of become these hangers-on to to the lives of the Duchamp women
0: yeah well and it's just interesting because from what we see of the women and their interaction with the men as well it doesn't really seem like they're happy with it either so it's just like (laughs) misery it's misery all around (laughs) um yes it's a fun system and, and i mean you know they, even the men talk about that like they say blake who's you know essentially in the in the guise of a 40 year old pedophile looking dude um yep. it, you know they they sort of say to him oh even you could get some sort of 20 year old um who's just trying to run away from the family but they always get dragged back and that just really <laughs> sort of sets out how miserable this is for the women they the covered too if a lot yeah. of them are, doing the, you know, entering intentionally horrible marriages just to escape.
1: Yeah. Um, to Blake's defense, he plays this creepy uncle quite well. He leans into the <laughs> character and seems to start imagining what it would be like to have a 20 year
0: old practitioner wife. It's unsettling and gross. He calls himself out on this later in the chapter as well, uh, yep. where he's just sort of like, I really need to reevaluate my process for picking my <laughs> disguises. <laughs> because, like, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's like he's gone even worse than he did with Maggie in the previous uh, chapter. Yeah, like, like I, honestly, in the previous chapter, he could have shown up to Maggie's school dressed as like a school kid, um, but he but he chose some middle aged creeper.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the the creepiness or faux creepiness. I don't know. It's not over yet. We'll get to some more in a bit. Um, I want yeah. to just point out though, like this conversation is so mundane in so many ways like they're basically just offer like asking his name and all these kinds of simple things that because of the laws that have been set up become
0: so high tension it's it's great it's so fun yeah there's so much. like you just sort of as you're reading you read the question like oh what's your name and you're like oh fuck oh uh, yeah, yeah well that's that <laughs> and then like sort of like uh, uh i don't want to tell you and <laughs> Yeah, um, and they bite. He, he seems to he he does okay. He kind of
1: plays the character well, um, and eventually avoids yeah. too much hanging out. Basically, just hangs around and eats food, pokes around, and tries to get dirt or info on the Behames and the Duchamps.
0: Yeah, and I mean to be fair, he has been complaining about lack of food for you know over an arc now. So yeah, uh, it's good to see him get a feed. But it, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it does. He just just sort of hang around and hope. Something good or so happen something though. happens.
1: Hope an opportunity presents itself, which it doesn't. Um,
0: no, th- like he he sort of complains. that This entire dinner was just very ordinary. Um, and, and you yep. really, this is the point where you realise that his entire heist plan here is: a, get into the house; b, yep, and then. Well yeah, Robin. there's no B.
1: It's it's A get into the house and then question mark question mark question mark. <laughs> um the party starts winding down and Blake realizes, "Oh, I didn't actually have a plan." Um he he kind of he notices the less important family members starting to get shepherded out and and Blake kind of starts running through his options. "Oh, I can throw out a random goblin, I can try and blow a fuse, I can try and burn the house down." Like <laughs> he has no ideas. Um but he kind of sees an opportunity when one of the younger, uh, one a young boy, like a six-year-old boy, kind of has to run off to go to the bathroom. And Blake takes the opportunity to,
0: again, be a creepy uncle. Yeah, I mean, you know, he doesn't do anything creepy. But, like, even he, as he's sort of doing it, is like, man, if somebody sees this, like, it's totally going to send the wrong signal. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, so he's following a six-year-old kid to the toilet and he manages to steal a bit of this kid's hair. And then we get probably the funniest bit in this chapter, which is him having a discussion with Rose about next steps as he's transforming it, forming himself into a six-year-old.
1: Yes, in quite uh, graphic detail, he describes, like, crunching his legs to be shorter and all kinds of gross things like that.
0: He shrinks one leg and then falls over because he goes to stand on it, but it's like a foot shorter than the other one. So yep. then he manages to stand back up and bounce himself up and down to squish the other leg into place. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so visual, and this scene you can just tell would be hilarious in a in a like visual adaptation of fact.
1: Yeah, um, Blake is really going all out on this glamour uh, to the extent that he's changed his his shape so much. If things go wrong,
0: he's very fucked. Um. Yeah. To which Blake responds, I, "I'll deal with that problem lo- later. Right now, I just need to focus on this, which is." yep so blake that's hashtag that's so blake Uh, i mean honestly given the amount of negative karma uh his family's racked up i want to say that's so thorburn
1: (laughs) yeah um so blake has transformed into a little boy and now he kind of has an easier time blending in he basically can run around and act weird and nobody will really pay any attention to him because he is a child um so blake kind of slips into the smaller group Uh, that has been shepherded into this kind of roped-off area of the house. Um, And things start to go bad quite quickly. Uh, (laughs) They're doing a magic ritual, and things really pick up. Laird basically gives a short speech, and then the ritual starts, and Blake is still like, wait, 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 no, I need to figure out what's going on. This can't just be happening right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very much... You you think, like, oh, he's coming into the secret meeting. This is where he's going to get, like, all the juicy... Info that he needs, but it's like he, he he just he just walks in and there's some giant spell set up that everyone's getting pamphlets on, and they're like, oh wow, led this is amazing, and he's like, yes, yeah, so let's do it and wipe out the Sawburns and it's like, well, yeah. shit,
1: yeah, um, the <laughs> that's basically the the chapter ends with um with Blake kind of realizing, oh shit, this ritual's happening right now, and I don't have any ideas.
0: Yeah, like, before they was sort of seemed like it was they were starting it, I was like, oh, you got to go, like, scuff up the symbols or something, like, yeah, hopefully that'll help.
1: No, yeah, they waste no time.
0: <laughs> yeah, by the time you're sort of getting ready to, to think Blake should do that, it's just already underway, and, you know, there's no way you could do it without getting noticed now.
1: Yeah. Um, so, Blake has no ideas. Elliot, if you were Blake in this situation, what would you do? How do you get out of it?
0: yeah I have no idea. I think this is probably the time to just start throwing goblins out. um yeah. like what yeah, if throw those
1: goblins everywhere to hope things go well
0: yeah i'd be I'd be treating those goblins like confetti and running for my life yeah,
1: yeah um, I also love here that we get a a little glimpse at Laird's familiar. He opens up this pocket watch that we previously knew was his implement, his familiar something, and out of it comes this old kind of father time esque guy who just yeah. Uh, runs to the centre of the circle and, and dives into it, basically.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, a sort of... Yeah, you're right, like a Father timey figure actually suits perfectly for some sort of time spirit like Laird would have.
1: Yeah, um, that's the end of our chapter. But we jumped over one thing, which is when uh, when uh, Laird and Sandra were introducing the rituals they're about to do, Sandra gives a little speech about tarot cards that she's pulled for Blake and Rose, Um And we wanted to give this the opportunity it deserved to be talked about at length. And so we've kind of dived into what these tarot readings could mean.
0: Yeah. And so I knew nothing about tarot going into this, except it's a bunch of cards people pretend to tell the future with, or maybe really tell the future with. Yeah, you don't know. Come on, Elliot. So interestingly, I guess this is just, you know, a fun fact, Uh, but uh, tarot cards actually start off, they're part of like a deck of cards that are used in some places in Europe, like Italy. Yep. And it's just like, you know, the cards we use for poker or, or blackjack or 500, like the classic 52 card set, they're from they're from a, a very similar set of cards that has a fifth suit, which is all 21 picture cards. Uh, uh-huh. And I don't really get how that fits into those games. But um, essentially somebody at one point just took out that fifth suit of picture cards, added the Joker, which got renamed to the fool, and created what is apparently called now the Major Arcana deck of tarot cards. Um, and that uh-huh. seems to be what uh Sandra Duchamp used to read Blake and Rose.
1: Yeah. Um I wanna point out one thing which was interesting. Uh she draws two cards for each for each character. Two cards yeah. for Blake, two cards for Rose. And she does so referring to them as the left hand and the right hand. Um Yeah. This <laughs> this isn't a thing that exists <laughs> as far as, you know, you research this elliot and you get yeah, back no, like, I- uh, so this doesn't exist. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I spent a long time, because and, and, uh, when I first started looking at the tarot cards, it was, um, you know, they have meanings right way up and then like reversed or like upside down. Yeah, And uh, <laughs> that was like all I could find in relation to the various meanings. I spent a good long while trying to figure out if I was just missing something, but it turns out it's unique to Pact.
1: Um, so you posted it in the Doof Media Discord group, and we got a response from Wildbo. And he he basically explained that this was a system that he completely came up with for Pact, but kind of sort of based off of the idea of the right hand, the dexterous hand being the good or active, and the left hand, the sinister hand, being evil or passive. Um, we didn't get too many notes on it, but I think it's a it, it's an interesting way to think about it from the perspective of of like active or passive, with the right hand card being like the main personality type because Sandra is trying to kind of diagnose the personalities of these characters. Uh, the right hand being the kind of main personality type with the left hand card being the like offhand personality type, an auxiliary personality attribute. Um, yeah. I think it's an interesting way to frame the the cards that we get for each character. So let's keep that in mind.
0: And so with that said, let's, let's have a look at what they got. Cause this was actually pretty fun. Um, so Blake's first card, which was his right hand. So this is the the main one was mm-hmm. the full, um, which is not as <laughs> dim- dismissive as it sounds. Um, so at the first of all, the Fool is the protagonist in in, in the major Arcana deck, uh, which is very interesting because Blake's just essentially been told he's the protagonist of the story. Um, <laughs> he's becoming self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Fool is all about sort of symbolizing new beginnings uh, and spontaneity and a free spirit, which is, is very Blake. Yeah. Um in you fact, you I, actually I, yeah read I want to I want to so read this this one quote uh that was from a a website I was getting this information from. Uh throw caution to the wind and be ready to embrace the unknown, leaving behind any fear, worry, or anxiety about what may or may not happen. This is about new experiences, personal growth, development and adventure. The time is now. Take that leap of faith even if you do not feel 100% ready or equipped for what is coming. Which is hilarious, because that's not advice Blake needs. That's already him to the key. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I mean,
1: Sandra's trying to read their personalities, and this is so on point that even though it's from a fictional story, it makes me think the tarot cards are real. <laughs> like, it's so accurate that it defies its fiction constraints to be like, oh, yeah, okay, this is on point.
0: <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and so then Blake's other card, which was his left hand, was the uh, High Priestess. Um, And so she's all about intuition, sacred knowledge, uh, a connection to the divine feminine, which I I assume is maybe Blake's connection to Rose. Uh, I don't know. That's Mm -hmm. probably reaching. Uh, But what's interesting is the High Priestess is also all about the division of the conscious and subconscious mind, which is very Blake. Uh, He's had multiple beats where he's mentioned how he does things and then consciously catches up to himself to figure out why he did it.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I think the connection to Rose also feels like it makes sense in here, uh, especially as the kind of auxiliary attribute. I feel like, you know, we've got Blake as this protagonist, and this left-hand card to me indicates oh, his connection to the feminine, his, his the division of his mind, like, you know, feels yeah. pretty on point.
0: Uh, and so then Rose's first card, uh, her right-hand one, uh, was the hanged man, um, which, as Blake points out, is is a little ominous. So the hanged man symbolizes sort of like surrender and like letting go. Like, you know, he's the hanged man's about to die. So it's all about putting your life on hold and, Mm. and be becoming a martyr or a sacrifice to the greater good, which I mean, given what we know about Rose so far is kind of on point and pretty depressing. Um, And and then the hanged man also has an interesting attribute uh, where he's, he's all about new perspectives, like because he's upside down, he sees the world differently to everyone else, which just immediately calls to mind the fact that Rose is in a mirror. Um yeah. I guess it just works so well.
1: Yeah, she she has a literal different perspective as well as in comparison <laughs> to uh the fool, uh, uh you know, she she goes about things in a different way. I think it I think it's very on point but also, yeah, like
0: ominous as heck. That card works on a lot of levels for Rose. It's it's a really good one. Um and Yeah, then... it doesn't
1: imply good things though. Anyway. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Uh, and then Rose's final card uh, for her left is the Chariot. Um, And this is probably the one I'm having the most trouble reconciling um, at the moment. So the Chariot is all about like control, willpower, success, and action, um, which probably none of those are words I would really associate with Rose right now. Maybe success to an extent willpower, but control uh, is something she desires, but I would not really call it an attribute that she has right now
1: i think the way i would think about this one is in the context of the way she lived her life i guess i'm going to put that in air quotes the way she lived her life before she became rose in the mirror right like yeah that's fair it kind of gives me vibes of like you know the the child whose parent has made them learn violin from a very young age and their life has become all about like being fully in control being meticulous um, planning yeah. things out, getting it done, right? That's true. Which, you know, Rose definitely gives me those kinds of vibes from her relationship with her family. So I think that as a personality type kind of works for me. Um,
0: yeah, that's yeah. fair. Um, I will say the last little thing that the chariot is is sort of associated with uh, is like uh, having a destiny um, which, considering mm. Rose was literally created for a purpose that we probably don't fully understand yet, um, so destiny is is a sensible attribute for one of her cards to have. Yeah. So her two cards say, "Hey, you have a destiny, and you're going to be a <laughs> martyr. Surrender,
1: <laughs> surrender, become a martyr. Like, ooh, what's that trying to say? <laughs> but of course, no comment.
0: Yeah. Um, no, it's it's definitely not a good sign. Um, yeah." and and so just to sort of double check because i think the reason things like horoscopes work so well mm. is because they're so generic that they don't really mean anything and you can fit them into your life regardless mm-hmm. so i wanted to make sure that we weren't doing that and i read some of the meanings of the other tarot cards mm. um and, and i mean for the most part i think like you know they were pretty irrelevant to Blake and Rose there were maybe one or two words that you're like oh yeah that could be blake or oh that could be rose but yeah. um these cards definitely fit them to a T. Um the only the only one I really felt was a great fit for for one of them was uh The Moon uh would be a great fit for Rose because it's all about illusion, fear and anxiety which uh hmm. I feel like suits her current life. She is an illusion and she's anxious <laughs> all true. the time because Blake leaves her the hell behind. Um That's, but it, yeah, yeah, apart from that.
1: I think I don't know. I think I don't want to quote use this quote but i do think you're being a bit unfair to rose here i think (laughs) i mean yes she definitely is an illusion but um i i do see her as someone who like if not has control strives for control in her life you know
0: no yeah that's true i i'm i'm i much more was focused on the fear and anxiety coming from (laughs) her current situation than a general personality trait um that's fair uh, you know, being um, being Blake's second fiddle, I think, would make anyone understandably anxious, uh, based on what we've seen so far.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, she drew the third wheel card. So, <laughs> um, anyway, that's that's all we have. Uh, that's all we have time for for breach three point three. I mean, I guess that's not true. We could go forever, but we fit the end of our notes, so we're <laughs> going to end the episode, uh, and you have to deal with it. Um, that's that's breach three point three, and we will be back uh, in two days to talk about Breach 3.4.
0: Yes, so that'll be That's Friday like the 22nd. 22nd.
1: Yeah. I, I made a reference earlier to the Doof Patreon, uh, uh to the to the Doof Discord, which is one of the many, many perks that you will get if you uh support the Doof Network on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash Media to check out all the great perks and see what's up with that. It's a good idea. You should do it.
0: Yeah, the Discord's a lot of fun. It's a great group of people in there. And then we've also got uh, Wildbow's Patreon on the same Patreon website, patreon.com slash Wildbow. And, you know, as we've said, he made this, so you should definitely throw him some dollars if you're enjoying uh, all of his, you know, fantastic stories.
1: Yeah. Um, and if you're enjoying those stories enough to want to talk about them with us, uh, and you're not a patron, which you should be, and then you can talk about them with us on the Discord. Uh, <laughs> but if not there, you can talk about us, talk to us about it on the discussion threads, which we will link in the details of this episode.
0: Yes, and for all other information on uh, you know this show and all of our previous episodes, head over head on over to our website doofmedia.com.
1: Otherwise, we will see you all in 2 days for Breach 3.4.
0: See ya.